I'm excited to have this opportunity to open up God's Word with you and to hear Him speak to us through His Word. But before we begin, I want to pray for us again briefly. And I'm going to pray from the third verse of our hymn, Come Thou Almighty King. Let's pray. Come, holy comforter, thy sacred witness bear in this glad hour. Thou who almighty art, now rule in every heart and never from us depart, spirit of power. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, friends, go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 20 as we continue our study through the book of Genesis. If you're using the Bible that we've provided, you'll find the passage on pages 14 and 15. And I want to encourage you to open to the passage so that you can follow along because I'm going to read the whole thing here shortly. And I also want to encourage you to keep the passage open in front of you because we're going to reference it often in our time together today. The central purpose of the book of Genesis is to show how God kept his promise to send an offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head and rescue mankind from sin. You'll remember that in Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned and plunge all of mankind into sin, God curses the serpent for tempting the man and woman to sin and promises to send a child from the woman, a man who would come to crush the serpent's head and rescue God's people from sin. Yet, who that man is and how he will rescue mankind from sin isn't clear. Rather than a clear statement describing exactly who he is and exactly how he'll save God's people, we find that the accounts of the early chapters of Genesis instead foreshadow his identity and foreshadow all of the various ways he will save his people. So think with me. We, we learn in the early chapters of Genesis that he'll be like Abel. He'll offer a sacrifice that is pleasing to the Lord, yet his brothers will hate him and as a result, kill him. We learn that he'll be like Noah because he will bring us rest from our labors and relief from the curse of sin. We learn that he'll be like the ark. In him, we'll find protection from God's wrath and judgment against sin. We learn he'll be like Shem, one of Noah's sons, as the one who will cover the shame of the nakedness of our sin. And then in Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to another man who, more clearly than any other man up to this point in Genesis, teaches us about both the identity of this coming Savior and how he will save his people from their sins. And that man is Abraham. Think about how Abraham teaches us about the identity of this savior. God promises that the coming savior will be one of Abraham's offspring. He will be a descendant of Abraham. And we also see that Abraham foreshadows for us how this coming Messiah 
will save his people from their sins. Right, we saw that in Genesis chapter 14, just as Abraham defeated powerful kings to rescue his people, to rescue Lot, so the coming savior will defeat the most powerful of rulers to rescue his people. We saw it also in Genesis chapter 18, just as Abraham interceded with God for the salvation of the people of Sodom, so this coming savior will intercede before God for the salvation of his people. And we see another way that Abram foreshadows for us how this coming Messiah will save his people from their sins here in chapter 20. So I'm gonna go ahead and read the passage for us now. I want you to follow along with me. This is God's word. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, save me. He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech. 
and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. There are legit like 10 different sermons you could preach from this chapter. 10 different points, all which are worthy of like entire sermons on their own. So I'm not gonna be able to focus on everything in this chapter or answer every question that comes up in this chapter. But I'm gonna try as best I can to focus on what I think is the central point of Genesis chapter 20. And the central point of Genesis chapter 20 is that salvation from sin comes through God's appointed prophet and mediator. Salvation from sin comes through God's appointed prophet and mediator. We're gonna look at this passage under two headings if you're taking notes this morning. Point one, sin brings death. And point two, God's appointed prophet brings life. Point one, sin brings death. Point two, God's appointed prophet brings life. So first, sin brings death. I want you to go ahead and look down with me at verse one. When we last saw Abraham, it was in chapters 18 and 19, and there he was living by the oaks of Mamre in the land of Canaan. And in verse one of chapter 20, we learn that he has now journeyed south from there to the region of the Negev. This is just outside of Egypt, in between Canaan and Egypt, and is sojourning, traveling as a foreigner, in the land of Gerar. Now, the text doesn't tell us why he's journeying or moving on from where he was, but I think it's safe to assume that the reason he is traveling around was because he owned massive amounts of livestock, right? Livestock that would need fresh grass, and so after they ate up all the grass in one area, he would have to continue journeying to new areas so that they would have food to eat. But Moses, the author of Genesis, is less concerned with why Abraham left and more concerned with what happened when he got to Gerar. Look at verse two. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So apparently, when Abraham arrives in Gerar, he's confronted or questioned by the men of Gerar. They wanna know who he is. What are you doing here? And, and who is this woman who is with you? And so Abraham tells them that Sarah is his sister. And as a result, Abimelech hears the report of it, and he says, bring me his sister Sarah so I can take her as one of my wives. Now, if you've been tracking with our series in Genesis, you, may, you might be thinking right now, wait a second, am I having deja vu? Didn't this happen already? Like, didn't, didn't Abraham already tell somebody that Sarah was his sister, and didn't a ruler already take her as his wife? If that's what you're thinking, you're not experiencing deja vu. That did already happen. In Genesis chapter 12, right after God made his covenant with Abraham, promising to bless him, promising to make him a great nation, give him a land of his own, and bless the nations through him, what does Abraham do? He, he journeys to Egypt, and because he's afraid the Egyptians will kill him, they take his wife, Sarah. He, he tells them that, hey, this is not my wife, this is my sister. They take his wife, Sarah, 
and Pharaoh takes her as one of his wives. And what happens when he does that? Pharaoh takes her to be one of his wives, and then the Lord sends plagues on the house of Pharaoh. That's not the only similarity between Genesis 20 and Genesis 12. In both passages, Abraham is afraid because he thinks the men of the city will kill him to take Sarah. In both passages, God afflicts the rulers with some form of plague. In both passages, the rulers confront Abraham, asking him why on earth he told them Sarah was his sister. In both passages, the rulers give Abraham abundant wealth and return Sarah to him. And in both passages, God is showing that even when his people fail to trust him, he will ensure that his promises to them are fulfilled. But even though that's a legitimate point of this passage, I don't think that's the point. I think the point of this passage is that sin brings death. Why do I say that? Look at verse three. After Abimelech takes Sarah, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man. I mean, can you comprehend what this dream must have been like? Raise your hand if you've ever had a bad dream. Raise your hand if you've ever had a nightmare. Now, keep your hand up if you've ever had God appear to you in a dream and the first words out of his mouth are, you're dead meat. Look, this is a terrible dream. Can you imagine having God come to you and the first thing he says is, you are a dead man. Right? That is a terrible dream. I'm sure most of you have had those terrible types of dreams where it's like you're in them, and while you're in them, you realize, this is terrible. What is going on here? Please tell me this isn't real. And then you wake up, and you're, think, you're like, thank you, Lord. It was a dream. It wasn't happening. This is that type of dream times 10,000. God appeared to Abimelech, and his message was, you are a dead man. No pleasantries, no introduction, no Abimelech. I am the Lord Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Abimelech, you have acted unwisely against me. No, none of that. Behold, you're dead. Not the message you want to hear from God. And why is he a dead man? Look again at verse three. Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Abimelech is a dead man because he took another man's wife as his own. He has committed adultery. He has sinned. And because he has sinned, he is a dead man. Sin brings death. Friends, we need to pause here to briefly appreciate how seriously God takes the sanctity of marriage. Marriage comes from God. Marriage was created by God. And he created marriage to be enjoyed by one biological man and one biological woman who would become one flesh, produce and raise children, 
and remain committed and faithful to one another for life. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons God takes adultery so seriously is because marriage is meant to be a picture of God's relationship to his people. God is like a faithful husband who lays down his life for his bride and is committed to her forever. He never cheats on his people. He never commits adultery. He is never unfaithful. And from the very beginning of Scripture on through to the very end, God teaches us about the sanctity of marriage and how opposed he is to adultery. We see it here in Genesis chapter 20. Abimelech, you are a dead man. We see it in the fact that adultery in Israel later under the Mosaic Covenant was punishable by death. We see it in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 13, verse four. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. God is seriously opposed to adultery. Adultery brings death and judgment. Friends, if you're married, or if you're thinking about marriage, you need to be very soberly aware of how vigilant you need to be in guarding your marriage. Satan would love nothing more than to destroy your marriage. And one thing all of us in this room have to admit is that none of us, none of us, is immune to the temptation to fall to the sin of adultery. What does Paul say? Whoever thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. You need to be able able to say seriously, I am constantly walking on the edge of sin. I feel like I could fall off at any moment, and so I need to be extra vigilant to guard my marriage. Satan wants nothing more than to destroy marriage. We need to be thinking about, praying about, fighting for, and regularly building into our marriage. And we need to be praying for the rest of the marriages here in this room. In a culture that thinks so little and lightly about marriage, and that that subtly undermines the importance of marriage, we are going to be affected by our culture's opinion of marriage in very subtle ways. And so we need to be actively swimming against the current. Was that little uh, anecdote about the, the old fish who walked by or swam by the other two fish, the younger fish, and he said, hey, how's the water today, fellas? And the, the younger fish are like, what water, right? They didn't recognize what they were surrounded by, that they were actually like living in the fish and the water was keeping them alive. The, the fish were living in the water and it was keeping them alive. They didn't recognize what they were swimming in. If, if we're just floating along, culture is going to slowly degrade our opinion of marriage, our estimation of marriage, what we believe about marriage. So we need to be actively fighting against it, holding the same opinion of marriage that God holds of it. He doesn't take adultery lightly. Abimelech, you are a dead man. But here's the thing. It's not just adultery that brings death. All sin brings death. 
we might be relieved sitting here that we've never had a dream where God came to us and said, you are a dead man. But the reality is, scripture is the living and active voice of God. When scripture speaks, God speaks. And the clear testimony of all scripture is that sin brings death. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you shall die. James 1. But each person, when he is tempted, is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. The wages of sin is death. All men are appointed to die once and then face judgment. The sobering message that God has for you today is you are a dead man. I am a dead man because all of us have sinned. We've committed sins of pride and arrogance, sins of anger and malice, sins of bitterness and rage, sins of lust and lying, gossip and stealing. The list goes on and on and on. All of us have sinned, and as a result, all of us are dead men before the Lord. You are a dead man. I am a dead man. We have all sinned. And here's another thing that we learn in this passage. Saying we didn't know we were sinning won't get us off the hook. Look at verse 4. It says, now Abimelech had not approached her. That means that he hadn't slept with Sarah yet. So he sinned by taking her as his wife, but he hadn't committed the even more grievous sin of actually sleeping with her, which we'll find out, he, we'll find out that he would have done had God not prevented him from doing by striking him in his house with a plague of some sort, another sermon for another day. But notice what Abimelech says next. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Let's summarize what he's saying. He's saying, I didn't know. I had no idea she was another man's wife. But the fact that he didn't know doesn't get him off the hook. He is still a dead man because he still sinned. Uh, in, in our house, Leah is normally the one to get the mail each day. And from my office, because it's not far from our front door, I can usually hear the creaking of the mailbox when it opens around 4.35 p.m. Uh, and she, the, you can hear the, the mailbox lid open, and then I can hear the mail come out, and then I hear the lid slam shut after she's pulled the mail out. And I can usually hear her as she shuffles through the mail in the front room and I'm always bracing a bit when that happens because every once in a while I'll hear her say babe shortly after which my office door opens and she walks in with a loving but disappointed look on her face and she holds out to me one of those photo enforced speeding tickets. 
And I take the ticket, and I'm like, no, 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 this time my car was stolen. I don't know when it was stolen, but that, that couldn't, it couldn't be me. And I look at the ticket, I look at the license plate, and what do they do? They zoom that license plate out for you, like, yeah, yeah buddy, this is your car. I look at the time and date, I look at my calendar, I cross-check it, and it's me. And my heart sinks, and I want to scream, I didn't know! I didn't know I was speeding. I didn't know there was a camera there. I didn't know. Do you know what the DMV rep would say to me if I called and pleaded ignorance? Sorry, buddy. Ignorance is no excuse. You were still speeding. Pay up. Right? Saying I didn't know there was a camera won't get me off the hook with a DMV. And saying we didn't know we were sinning won't get us off the hook with God. God takes sins of ignorance so seriously that there's an entire section of the Mosaic law dedicated to dealing with sins committed in ignorance and how Israelites might be restored from sins they didn't realize they were committing. Saying we didn't know won't get us off the hook and neither will blaming it on someone else. Let me just consider what's going on in verse four again. Abimelech is basically saying, this is Abraham's fault. He lied to me and said Sarah was his sister. And you know what? Abraham did lie. Abraham was at fault. But that doesn't change the fact that Abimelech still sinned. For the kids, teens down to the youngins, this is an important lesson for you guys to learn. There are going to be times in life where people do mean things to you, right? So at your age, it may be a sibling. I'm sure you have plenty of examples of your siblings doing mean things to you, or it may be a classmate. They may sin against you by making fun of you, uh, by being mean to you, doing something mean to you, or hitting you, or something like that, right? But if, if you retaliate by doing something mean back to them, like hitting them or making fun of them, you're also guilty of sinning. If you say to God, it's, it's their fault, they're the one who sinned against me first. God is gonna say, they did sin against you. And I will hold them accountable for that. But that's no excuse for your sin against them. Even if they sinned against you, if you sin in response, you're responsible for that sin. And kids, sin brings death. God will hold all of us individually accountable for the sins that we commit, whether we committed them in ignorance or as a result of someone sinning against us. And sin brings death. Now realize that this is heavy, right? This is a sobering message. It's not the type of message I'm like, oh, okay, I'm really looking forward to preaching this one today, right? But we shouldn't miss that God's message to Abimelech, that he was a dead man for his sin, that message wasn't God's final word for Abimelech. Look at verse seven. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. God, in his kindness, was warning Abimelech about the danger of his present condition so that he might turn from his sin and live. In the same way, God is kindly warning you and me today. Sin brings death. And he's kindly warning us so that we might turn from our sin and live. 
But that warning is only effective if we heed it and respond to it. Every, every Saturday, I take one of our kids grocery shopping, and depending on what food we need, we'll hit up different stores as a result. And on this particular Saturday, we needed a lot of bulk items, which, meant we, which means we went to Costco, right? And so I went to the DC Costco on a Saturday. Without a doubt, one of the worst possible places to be on a Saturday. It places a madhouse. And whoever designed that parking lot with a Chick-fil-A and a Costco in one place with like four-way stops and only like one or two ways in or out, this is terrible. They need to go back to school and figure out how to fix that parking lot. But that's not the point. Whenever I go to Costco on Saturday, I go in with a plan because of how busy it is. So as soon as I get into the store, if you've been there before, I immediately turn right in order to avoid the main aisle where all the the traffic is that's going to the back of the store. I I, I break right and I go up the outside aisle because hardly anyone walks up that aisle. It's nice and peaceful and quiet. And if you've ever walked up that aisle, then you know that that's where they keep the random tools and gadgets and office supplies And it was around this time that I had been noticing more and more dirt and dust on my computer keyboard. So I was stoked when I happened to walk by a six-pack of cans of what I thought was compressed air. Compressed air in a can. This is great. I could use it to blow the dust off my keyboard. So I grabbed a bundle, went on my way. And after I got home, the kids are always helping us put our stuff from Costco away. And they were inspecting everything. What is this? What is that? What is this? And they came across the handy-dandy bottles of compressed air and they were super fascinated that air could be put in a can. And like it shoots out, like really fast? Will you show us, Dad? Will you show us? And I, being a super fun-loving dad, was like, yeah, of course, let's do it. Ripped out a bottle, put the little red thing in that shoots the air out, and it was like, and they're like giggling and laughing. It was great fun. What I didn't realize, though, was that it wasn't just compressed air. Apparently, some genius thought it would be a good eye to mix the air, mix the good idea to mix the air with a bunch of terrible chemicals that you absolutely are not supposed to spray on people. I'm glad to say my kids are fine, but here's the thing: I can't say I wasn't warned. I just didn't look at the packaging. Leah lovingly came to me again. <laughs> Have you looked at this bottle? Did you say that? The kids said you sprayed this on them. Did you really spray this on them? There are warnings all over the thing. Do not spray on anyone. If you do, like, run for your life, right? The warnings were there. I just didn't pay attention to them. The warnings are only effective if you heed them and respond to them. Friends, in the same way, God is kindly warning us of the danger and consequences of sin. And we need to pay attention to his warnings. His warnings do us absolutely no good if we ignore them. So what do we do if we recognize that we've sinned? Where do we turn? Who do we turn to? That's the point of, uh, that brings us to point two. Point two, God's appointed prophet brings life. Sin brings death, but God's appointed prophet brings life. I want you to look at verse seven again. And notice what God instructs Abimelech to do. He tells Abimelech to return Abraham's wife because he is a prophet. And he would pray for Abimelech and Abimelech would live. You'll remember that one of the central promises of God's covenant with Abraham was God's promise that all of the nations on earth would find blessing in Abraham the promised Messiah and Savior 
who would one day come to crush the serpent's head and rescue mankind from sin was going to come from Abraham's descendants. That is how all of the families on earth would be blessed in Abraham. But that promised blessing of salvation depended on how a person responded to Abraham. So if you think about the promise from Genesis chapter 12, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. To participate in the promised salvation that the offspring of Abraham would bring, one needed to bless Abraham, honor Abraham, treat Abraham well. If a person cursed Abraham, dishonored Abraham in any way, they would be cut off from this salvation. And Abimelech has cursed Abraham. He has dishonored him by taking Sarah as his wife. But God, in his kindness, tells Abimelech how he can be saved from judgment. Go, bless Abraham, honor Abraham by returning his wife and asking him to pray for you. And if you do this, you will live. What we see in the rest of the passage is that God's promise that Abimelech would find healing and life in Abraham could be trusted. In verses eight to 13, Abimelech goes to Abraham and he begins rightly rebuking Abraham. He asks him why he would lie to him and and as a result, bring judgment on Abimelech and Abimelech's house. And Abraham responds by telling him he was afraid. I thought you would kill me. And technically Sarah is my sister. We share the same father, but not the same mother. The whole exchange highlights the fact that Abraham's righteousness before God is not his own, but comes only through his faith in God. This is just another epic failure of Abraham to trust in God. You just think about Abraham's life at this point, how he's had these low points, and he's had the high points. Genesis 13, he, didn't, he wasn't tempted by the land of the Jordan Valley, but he trusted in God's promise to give him a land. Genesis 14, he defeated all the Mesopotamian kings. High points and low points. If you just want an example of how God's people from the beginning who have been saved by faith will do great at times and struggle with sin at times, it's Abraham. So friend, if you are a a Christian, you've trusted in Christ and you're just wondering like, why, why do I keep stumbling and struggling? Know from Abraham's example, not only of the type of faith that you should have, but of the reality that as you walk by faith, you will continue to struggle with sin throughout the course of your life. But praise God, your right standing before God is not in your own righteousness, but in the perfect righteousness of his chosen prophet and mediator, who is Jesus Christ. We're gonna get to that in a second, right? Abraham struggled with sin over and over again, but Abraham's continued struggle with sin did not negate the fact that God had chosen him to mediate God's blessing to the nations. And that's clearly what's in view here. Look at verse 14 and following. After their tense exchange, Abraham, uh, Abimelech blesses Abraham with great wealth, gives him livestock and servants, gives him land, returns his wife Sarah in verse 16, along with a thousand pieces of silver as a way to show that he had not violated her. Even here, in spite of Abraham's sins, God is fulfilling his promise to bless Abraham. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. He will fulfill his promises to his people in spite of our sins. And after Abimelech blesses Abraham, Abraham, God's appointed prophet, who would mediate God's blessing to the nations, prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his household. Sin brings death, 
but God's appointed prophet brings life. But you may be wondering how, how on earth this is any help to you. I mean, Abraham is dead after all. If sin brings death and God's appointed prophet brings life and God's appointed prophet is Abraham and Abraham is dead, then we have no hope. Well, that would be true if Abraham were God's true appointed prophet who came to bring life to those who've sinned. But Abraham's ministry as a prophet who would mediate the blessing of life and salvation to the nations foreshadowed the ministry of the true prophet of God. And that true prophet of God is none other than Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham who came to mediate life and salvation to all who've sinned. Recall the Samaritan woman at the well, the conversation that Jesus had with her. She recognized that Jesus was a prophet, even calling him a prophet, a title that he freely accepted. The author of Hebrews identified Jesus as the true, the true prophet who brings the final and full revelation of God. But especially for those of you who might come from a Muslim background, we, need to, we want, to, want to make it a point to say that Jesus was far more than just a prophet. Christians believe, I would say rightly, that Jesus is not just a prophet, he is God in the flesh. And he proved that over and over again by his miraculous healings documented throughout the Gospels. Where Abraham had to pray to God for God to heal, Jesus healed directly and immediately because Jesus is the power of God for life healing, and salvation. He doesn't have to ask for healing. He heals himself because he is the power of God, God in the flesh. But his ministry of miraculous healings was meant to confirm the greater work that he came to do, which was to rescue us from the judgment we deserve for our sins against God. And he did that by dying on the cross to bear the punishment we deserve so that we could be freed from the judgment hanging over us. No longer does God say to you, you are a dead man if you have trusted in Christ. He says, you are a living man, a living woman. Rise, live, and walk before me in Christ. We, what does Paul say? Who were dead in our trespasses and sins. God made alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. Though we deserve to die, Jesus said, I will die so that they may live. And because he is the sinless son of God, death could not hold them. He rose from the dead three days after he was buried, showing that God accepted his sacrifice and he commands all people everywhere to repent and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. And those who do will be forgiven of their sins. They will be given abundant life now and they will be promised eternal life with God forever. And he offers that eternal life to everyone here today. But to receive it, you must repent. That means to turn from sin and to fully entrust yourself to Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. I think Abimelech is a wonderful picture of what repentance looks like. He turns away from his sin. He returns Abraham's wife and then goes above and beyond to bless Abraham. And while we may not give Jesus livestock and riches, he calls us to give our entire lives to him, to offer 
all of our lives as a living sacrifice. And we do that by turning from sin and seeking to live lives that honor him. But Jesus also calls us to rest in him because the reality is that even when we follow Jesus, all of us will still struggle with sin. Like Abraham, we'll continue to fail and falter and fall short. And I do not say that as an excuse for sin, that we may go on sinning, that grace may abound. It's just a reality of life. But even when we continue to struggle with sin, we rest in Christ because our forgiveness and the promise of eternal life isn't dependent on our perfection, but on Christ's perfection. Not only that, this passage also teaches us about God's intention to use a sinful people to minister his salvation to a world in need. You realize your struggles with sin don't disqualify you from sharing the gospel with other people? No more than Abraham's struggles with sin disqualified him from being God's appointed prophet and mediator. God uses sinful and broken people to tell other sinful and broken people about the one who never sinned, but who loved us so much that he took our sentence of death upon himself so that we could experience eternal life. And we're called to proclaim that message to all people. We don't wanna make the same mistake as Abraham. Did you notice how his wrong assumption, how wrong his assumptions were about the people of Gerar? Look at verse 11, we're just about to finish. After Abimelech asks him why he lied, Abraham says, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. When in reality, there was fear of God in that place. Abimelech and all of his servants, when they heard God's warning, were very afraid. I wonder how many of us are like Abraham, judging whether we think other people will have ears to hear based on maybe what they look like, maybe based on their ethnicity, maybe based on their socioeconomic standing. Ah, oh, they're not gonna listen. They're not gonna believe. When we, when we do that, we make the same mistake as Abraham. What we need to remember is that God has people in every place, in every place on earth, and he calls us to not judge by our eyes. We can't see the heart. We can't see whom God has chosen. We're called to proclaim the gospel freely to all and let God do the work of saving those whom he's called. And God has promised that all whom he has called will respond to his voice in the gospel. I wonder if that's you today. Will you hear and heed God's voice? Will you hear and heed his warning that sin brings death? Will you hear and heed his comfort that life comes through Jesus Christ and that life is available to you today if you would turn and trust in him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would impress the truths of this passage upon our heart, that having heard your warning, we would turn from sin and entrust ourselves to Christ. And in our salvation, would you be glorified both now and forever. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.